The history of cannabis in the United States is one that goes all the way back to the founding of this country. Right from the start, cannabis was growing alongside with the new nation of the United States. Many of the founding fathers were growers of hemp, including George Washington, who included it as one of his main crops at Mount Vernon. In those days, hemp and cannabis were economic boons that provided industrial utility that was unmatched. Rope, clothing, food could all come from hemp. It was also easy to grow and would be one of the reasons that Britain and the U.S. so rapidly industrialized. Cannabis was a common crop, and not one that raised eyebrows. It's good to remember, because today, we're going to be talking about prohibition. The prohibition of pot. Currently, we think of cannabis as moving from illegal and countercultural into the mainstream. Yet the period in which cannabis has been illegal in the U.S., is much smaller than the space of time in which it's been legal. Right now, we're returning to the norm of legal cannabis after a strange and corrupt vacation from it. Today, we're going to be talking about how cannabis became illegal, why it stayed illegal, and the colossal harms that prohibition has created. Welcome to the Canacast. While cannabis cultivation has been around since the Founding Fathers, the regulation of cannabis traces from the Civil War and U.S. expansion westward. During the days of the Wild West, there were plenty of snake oil salesmen, available to sell you an elixir for any pain, one that was usually a mix of alcohol, opium, cannabis, laudanum, and or other drugs. A cure for constipation, inflammation, headache, nausea, back pain, arthritis, impotence, and anything else you'd like to take it for. It may not solve your problem, but after you took it, you wouldn't care that you had one. The mystery of these patent medicines and the secret to their success was what was in them. As part of a wider move to regulate foodstuffs and drugs, the Pure Food and Drug Act was passed in 1906, requiring that certain foods, drugs, and liquids be accurately labeled as to what was inside. When before a bottle might proclaim waters from the fountains of youth, they now had to label those waters as whiskey. This increase in regulation led to cleanliness standards, consumer protections, and plenty of other benefits. It also, however, helped shift cannabis from an everyday plant to one that required special designation. Cannabis was now required to be disclosed and labeled before purchase, on its own or as an ingredient. This was the beginning of regulations on who and how people could begin to purchase cannabis, as well as other drugs. No longer could you walk down to your local Chinatown and pick up a ball of opium or anything else that you needed. During this time, xenophobia and racism was also on the rise as a reaction to the sudden and massive influxes of immigrants into the country. With this anti-immigration swell, so too was there a need for stories that would turn the public against immigrants, enraging and scaring the beginnings of a new middle class with sordid tales. For cannabis, this meant Mexican immigrants on the southern border. In 1910, the border conflicts on the Mexican-American divide were common, and anti-Mexican sentiment among many Americans was on the rise. To promote this, many began to associate marijuana, spelled with an H to make it seem more Mexican, with Mexican immigrants, trying to tie the drug to any instance of violence or upheaval that occurred. By giving cannabis the new moniker of marijuana, it created an entirely fictional entity. Many people didn't even realize that cannabis and the new drug marijuana were the same. 
a major victory in the public relations battle, opponents of cannabis had managed to completely reshape public understanding of the cannabis plant, while at the same time saying nothing about the plant that the public was so familiar with. Several xenophobic newspaper owners used their newspapers to tell sordid tales of rape, pillage, murder, massacre, and any other mostly non-existent crimes. Most of these tales that were perpetrated, so the papers claimed, by Mexican immigrants, were blamed on the Mexican scourge of the civilized world, marijuana. At the turn of the century, various versions and amendments were passed of the Poison Act in California to make owning extracts, tinctures, or other narcotic preparations of hemp or loco weed a misdemeanor. This was the beginning. Cannabis wasn't the only substance to be used as a tool of fear-mongering, though. In 1911, much further north in Canada, the Opium and Drug Act banned morphine, opium, and cocaine, not for the risk to public health, but to target the growing Chinese and Japanese communities in Vancouver. This movement from legal to illegal rooted the conversation around drugs in a battle about control, rather than a battle about benefits. Rather than looking at the cannabis plant and discussing the pros and cons of such, it was made a symbolic issue and the facts distorted by xenophobes, looking to scare a wider public into other actions. The campaign worked, and public officials, congressional, state, and local, by and large unfamiliar and uneducated on the new danger, marijuana, passed the Opium and Narcotic Act of 1920. These same politicians may have been surprised to know that they were actually criminalizing cannabis, of which many were intimately familiar, being from agricultural areas of the country. The Opium and Narcotic Act also ensured that prison sentences would begin to be enforced for drug use and possession more and more often, while the maximum prison sentence was increased from just one year to seven years in jail. The real gist of the bill, though? This allowed trafficking and possession to become a legal reason for deportation for any immigrant caught. In 1936, one of the key figures in the fight that would guarantee that cannabis would be made illegal joined the fray. Henry Anslinger. Anslinger was the first commissioner of the Treasury Department's Bureau of Narcotics and used the public's sudden exposure to marijuana as a means to keep his department open. Anslinger used the public's ignorance of this new terror marijuana and created a reason to keep himself in office. During Prohibition, the prohibition of alcohol, that is, Anslinger had been tasked with regulating and policing the illicit liquor industries that flourished when alcohol prohibition came into play. When prohibition was repealed, however, Anslinger looked for a new boogeyman to keep his department open. In fact, prior to prohibition, Anslinger had even said, There is probably no more absurd fallacy when addressing the idea that marijuana made people violent. Anslinger knew that cannabis not only didn't cause crime, but wasn't even particularly dangerous. Now Anslinger, instead of telling the truth about cannabis, would testify before Congress on the dangers of marijuana, telling stories of the horrors committed in the throes of marijuana addiction. Anslinger would sit, reach into his briefcase, and pull from it his gore file of rapes, murders, and other brutalities, stories about what was committed when the subject was under the effects of marijuana. Not only were these assertions rejected by the American Medical Association, but many pointed out that there was not a single case in the entire file 
that could be pointed to as having caused a violent crime. Nowhere in the rapes, murders, and fights could cannabis be shown as the reason for the crime. This also began Anslinger's campaign to destroy the image of cannabis covertly as well. Whereas before, Anslinger had called the idea of violence caused by marijuana a fallacy, now in marijuana, assassin of youth, Anslinger said, How many murders, suicides, robberies, criminal assaults, holdups, burglaries, and deeds of maniacal insanity cannabis causes each year can only be conjectured. By the tons it is coming into this country, the deadly, dreadful poison that racks and tears not only the body, but the very heart and soul of every human being who once becomes a slave to it in any of its cruel and devastating forms. Marijuana is a shortcut to the insane asylum. Smoke marijuana cigarettes for a month, and what was once your brain will be nothing but a storehouse of horrid specters. Hashish makes a murderer who kills for the love of killing out of the mildest-mannered man who ever laughed at the idea that any habit could ever get him. These pronouncements and policy positions would make Anslinger continue to stonewall attempts to contradict his claim on marijuana for the rest of his life. At the same time as this was occurring, the LaGuardia Committee on Narcotics, brought together by the then-mayor of New York, Fiorella LaGuardia, contradicted Anslinger's assertions on addiction. The committee found that the practice of smoking marijuana does not lead to addiction in the medical sense of the word. And so, Anslinger denounced it as unscientific and shoved it under the carpet. Anslinger may have been one of the first, but most certainly not the last in a long series of politicians who would fly in the face of medical, sociological, and criminological research, all pointing to lighter punishments, if not outright legalization of cannabis, going as far back as the 30s and 40s. From the moment that cannabis was made illegal, the knowledge of its usefulness and lack of harm were known, just ignored. Although Anslinger fired the first shots on cannabis, the person who would really make it a war was Richard Milhouse Nixon. Nixon would make sure not only that cannabis use would be punished, but would weaponize cannabis policy to take out political opponents and minorities. Nixon is known for Watergate, corruption, the war in Vietnam, and he was one of, if not the biggest, reasons that marijuana prohibition continued for as long as it did. Nixon, known for his dirty tricks and for playing criminal political games, found a useful tool in the criminalization of drugs, but especially cannabis. As the Marijuana Tax Act expired, Nixon passed a new set of drug criminalization standards, under which a drug would be classified into a schedule, from 5 to 1, moving from least harmful and most helpful at 5 to most harmful and least helpful at 1. Schedule 1 was the most severely restricted and dangerous category, and is described as such. The drug or other substance has a high potential for abuse. The drug or other substance has no currently accepted medical use in treatment in the United States. There is a lack of accepted safety for use of the drug or other substance under medical supervision. Schedule 1 includes drugs like methamphetamines, powerful psychedelics like LSD, DMT, also heroin, mescaline, and cannabis. Cannabis is, and has been, 
the most widely consumed illegal drug in the United States, and at the time this was known to the administration. Cannabis was a drug not only common among minority populations, especially African Americans, but was also common among the hippie movement and the protesting students of college campuses. All of the above were political opponents of Nixon and his agenda, and so they had to go. In this now famous quote from John Ehrlichman, a top Nixon aide and close confidant of Nixon, the drug policy of the Nixon administration was clearly laid out, with no frills. You understand what I'm saying? We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Nixon's war on drugs wasn't. It was a war on the people who opposed his political goals, and not without a heavy hit of racism. A bitter racist and anti-Semite in private, Nixon said this. It's a little hard to hear, but Nixon says, You know, it's a funny thing. Every one of those bastards that are out for legalizing marijuana is Jewish. What the Christ is the matter with the Jews, Bob? What is the matter with them? This and other statements that have come out in recent years really show the depth of just how sordid the illegalization of cannabis has been. Nixon originally gave cannabis its current designation as a Schedule I on a temporary basis, pending the approval of the Schaefer Commission, then known as the National Commission on Marijuana and Drug Abuse, one that he assembled with Republican Pennsylvania Governor Raymond Schaefer, with the expectation that he would receive the support of his party. The commission took a different view, and recommended that cannabis be discouraged by informing and educating, rather than by criminalizing, and that pot smokers presented no serious threat to the public at large. Indeed, the commission report was titled, Marijuana, a Signal of Misunderstanding. Nixon would ignore the recommendation to remove cannabis from Schedule 1, however, and instead go right about keeping it up there with heroin. Too useful a political tool? Keeping cannabis as a Schedule 1 drug would also increase the potential punishments and minimum requirements if an individual was found guilty of possession or trafficking. Under Nixon, Cannabis became a tool to punish and suppress dissenting political groups, as well as minority groups who Nixon loathed. It's important to keep this in mind, because just as Henry Anslinger used the specter of cannabis as an artificial boogeyman to scare people into keeping his department open, so too did Nixon use cannabis as a means to serve a political purpose, to disenfranchise and suppress citizens of the United States, both of them knowing all the while that their claims on the dangers of cannabis were false. 
No wonder that we have such a broken criminal justice system. When prisons have been flooded by millions of people, specifically minorities and dissenting political factions, for something that was known to have only been moderately harmful, and even then while at the same time possessing tremendous amounts of potential benefits. After Nixon, Carter made a push to move towards lifting the severity of cannabis laws, but in the end was largely unsuccessful. He thought that the punishment should match the crime, and that federal penalties for marijuana use had far exceeded what was reasonable. He also thought that marijuana legalization was largely an issue for states to decide for themselves. Here's Carter on marijuana. I support a change in law to end federal criminal penalties for possession of up to one ounce of marijuana, leaving the states free to adopt whatever laws they wish concerning marijuana. Jimmy Carter would provide a ray of hope that marijuana prohibition would be lifted and the persecution of those who smoked would stop. But the election of Ronald Reagan and the crusade of his wife Nancy Reagan would stop that dead in its tracks and deepen the crisis that was being created by the war on drugs. And finally, Nancy and Ronald Reagan. Just say no to drugs. The couple that gave us one of the most mocked PSAs in America. This is drugs. This is your brain on drugs. Ronald Reagan in the 1980 election said that cannabis was the most dangerous drug in America. Full stop. Not cocaine. Not heroin. Cannabis. This is the right place to start to understand just how misguided the war on drugs was that Ronald and Nancy waged on cannabis and the ways that they treated those who did drugs. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act holds the real legacy of Ronald and Nancy's campaign to dehumanize addicts, destroy the lives of countless teenagers, and continue to ignore research and consensus to the contrary of their anti-drug agenda. The Anti-Drug Abuse Act, passed without even seeing a committee, created new mandatory sentencing for cannabis and other drugs, effectively eliminating chances for clemency and also for federally appointed judges to use their prerogative and judgment on a case-by-case -case basis. While before a judge might have been able to take into account special circumstances of a case, now those judges would be required to impose minimum punishments of several years. This act also turned the entire federal prison system from focusing on rehabilitating and reintroducing those who were found guilty of crimes to a punitive focus that made the goal of sentencing punishment of the individuals. Now, anyone who's been to prison knows that it is incredibly damaging to your life. Losing not only years, but being forced to pay exorbitant fines, having a black mark against any future employment. A life could, and almost always was, ruined to great degree by a nonviolent drug offense. Under Reagan, not only did cannabis users have to face this, but they could, lose everything they owned. Under Reagan, civil asset forfeiture was made to include cannabis as well as harder drugs. What this meant is that for simple possession of cannabis, a person could lose their car, their home, their entire life savings. Everything that the police decided to confiscate. This system has become notoriously corrupt and encouraged police officers to make drug busts on people for the property they might be able to seize as opposed to the severity of the crimes those cannabis owners were actually in danger of perpetrating. 
There have been cases upon cases of police officers being motivated by the prizes they might plunder from harmless individuals rather than actually looking to serve and protect. What's important to note is that police departments can keep up to 90% of what they seize as profit and as a source of income for the police department. No wonder that the most widely consumed and one of the least harmful illicit drugs around was kept illegal when it was so profitable. This method of seizure is also considered by many to be a means to bypass laws around illegal search and seizure, allowing cops to take property without the full due process that a citizen would normally be afforded. A lot of people think that the history of cannabis prohibition stems from a lack of information or research or understanding of cannabis. It's important to know that it wasn't a lack of understanding that has kept cannabis illegal. Cannabis prohibition has been sustained and continued because of particular individuals who found that keeping weed illegal was beneficial to their personal political ambitions. The prohibition on cannabis has also led to a flooded prison system and is a major reason why the United States has 25% of the world's population of prison inmates. Are people committing crimes at 25% more than the rest of the world? Or, maybe, is it that we're criminalizing things that shouldn't be criminalized? What we have to understand is that the problems that the prohibition on cannabis has caused can be reversed, and even made better than before. The laws and acts that created this problem in our justice system sowed the seeds of corruption in our police force and ruined the lives of millions of innocent people can be reversed. They are only about 70 years old, and we can use common sense to find better ways to deal with drug use. We already know that rehabilitation and treatment is a far better alternative than to punish and imprison drug users. We also know that laws designed to harm drug dealers have done little to stem the flow of drugs, and have actually increased violent crime. Understanding the history of the prohibition of cannabis is essential to having a real and honest conversation about cannabis now. If you understand how the public image of cannabis became distorted, you can understand just how important this conversation really is. Thanks for tuning in, and if you'd like to support this podcast, consider donating to our Patreon. We really appreciate it. If you would like a weekly download spot, we're on Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, YouTube, any platform that you listen to podcasts on. We'll be there, easy as one, two, three, to download and listen. Thanks for tuning in, and remember, there's no can't in cannabis.